You are listening to an Elam Christian Center podcast. We hope that you are inspired, encouraged, and empowered by the message you are about to hear. I'm running out of time, but I don't like that negativity in my life. So let's jump straight into it. Part one of the Little Big Life. I don't have a title because I didn't know what to call it, but the note should be in the app. You can follow along with me. Let's pray. I think we need that, and then we're going to jump into the Word. Father God, I thank you for the truth of your Word. And tonight, we just submit ourselves to the truth of it. We come under it, and we pray, God, that you would stir something within us. We don't come to have our ears and our hearts tickled so that we might leave this place feeling better. Yeah, we come to be encouraged, but God, we also come to be refined. We come to be challenged, and so God, would you speak to us clearly today? I thank you, God, in the same way that Bex prayed, and I agree that you never leave us nor forsake us, and I thank you that because we're gathered in the name of Jesus, your presence is here with us. We're so thankful for that. We don't take that lightly, so we lean in today, and we say, Holy Spirit, speak for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you don't need to look very far in the Bible, in Scripture, to find that it's pretty clear that God calls every single one of us to live a big life. In overcoming suffering and adversity, Paul says in Romans 8.37, he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. In being elevated to positions of prominence, Moses writes in Deuteronomy 28.13, he says, if you listen to these commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today, and if you carefully obey them, the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You will always be on top and never on the bottom. And in living a full and satisfying life, Jesus said in John 10, 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and life to the full. Conquerors, above and not beneath, always on the top, never on the bottom, living an abundant life. Now, it's not often that someone can get away with saying this, but you were designed to be a big person. It wouldn't be too uncommon for you to come to church and hear sermons, Pastor Bex has preached them, I've preached them, I'll continue to do it, where you get encouraged with the idea that God has called you, that He loves you, that He'll fight your battles for you, that you can change the world and make a difference, that you can have an eternal impact on others, that there is an assignment on your life, and that God would give you what you need to be effective and triumphant. Now, all of that is absolutely true, but it would be amiss of me to say that it's as simple as it sounds. Firstly, every single one of those triumphs and victories is because of His goodness, not because of ours. You know, as I read the Bible, there's a whole lot of encouragement and there's a lot of challenges, but I find with the encouragement, it's really interesting. It's kind of like a two-sided coin. It can kind of present itself like a backhanded compliment. You know what I mean when someone says, oh, you look nice today. You're like, thanks? Like, are you surprised? Do I not usually look nice? I heard a story of, uh, not myself, another one of our lead pastors who got down uh, after preaching one service and someone came up to them and said, hey, I don't usually like your preaching, but today was good. (laughs) Who says that? Like, what do you say to that? Thanks, I guess. Like, am I meant to be uplifted and pulled down all at the same time? And what's interesting is when you read the Bible, you see a lot of these moments where God seems to be speaking greatness and bigness over our life. And at the same time, we read like this in in John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And in Genesis 3, uh, 19, after Adam sinned, God reminds him that it's from dust that he came and to dust that he shall return. He kind of says, you're awesome and also you're the worst. Like you can do amazing things and there's bigness on your life, but also don't get ahead of yourself. You're not as good as you think you are. Without me, you can do nothing. You're like, thanks. It can be kind of tricky. But what is true is that every person in this room is called to live a big life. In fact, our community needs you to live a big life. People that are innovative and creative. 
people that start international companies that change the way we live our lives, scientists who make revolutionary discoveries, artists that create breathtaking work that inspire us beyond our own little world, parents that brilliantly raise other exceptional people that have a generational impact, selfless people that fight for the cause of justice in our society on the things that really matter, teachers who toil over not only the content but their delivery so that they could equip young people to take on challenges that don't even exist in this world yet, ordinary people like you and I living really big lives, lives that are about the needs of others, lives that make a difference, that are satisfying, lives that are lived the way that God actually designed us to live our lives. And yet, it's also clear in Scripture that it is God that opens the right doors at the right time, that He is ultimately in control of the elements that allow us to live a big life. You know, God desires to entrust every single one of us with much more, to release us into a big life, but here's the catch. God will orchestrate opportunities for us, but most of the responsibility that rests in us actually stepping into that big life actually sits in our hands. And Jesus unpacks this in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. What happens is the master entrusts three different portions of silver to three different servants and then explains that he's going to go away on a trip. Well, he comes back from the trip and the master that, sorry, the servant that he entrusted with five portions, this guy got the most, was faithful and he doubled what he had. And to that servant, the master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handing the small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. In other words, because you've been you've done well because you've been faithful with the little stuff. I'm going to enlarge your life. I'm going to help you live a bigger life because of the way that you handled the small. I've come to learn that the big life is reserved for those that can be trusted with it. How often do we want more? I want more influence. I want more responsibility. I want more wealth. I want more influence in the lives of others. I want to have a clearer pathway. I want more. We often have that yearning on our heart, and yet we can't get the little stuff right. The other servant that had two portions, he was also faithful and doubled it, and to him, God's promise was the same. And then the third servant that had just one portion of silver, he just buried it, and he did nothing with it. Even though he had a small amount, he didn't do anything with it, and so he cut himself off from the opportunity of living a bigger life. And so it is with you and I, that living a big life is absolutely on the cards, and God will grant it to us, but it starts with you and I being faithful and doing well with the little things that we can control. Let me explain it like this. Maybe you've heard this before. Big doors swing on small hinges. Have you noticed that? That some of the biggest doors, some of the biggest things in life seem to be hinged on really small things that dictate how it can go. Like if you speak harshly towards your spouse, your whole marriage can feel rocky. If you don't read the Bible, you can feel distant from the God that created you. That's pretty severe. If you don't invest wisely, you won't produce more wealth. If you hold on to unhealthy perspectives, it'll taint your view of other people. If you hang out with bad people, you keep bad company. It corrupts your entire character. James said it like this in chapter 3, verse 3 to 6. He says, when we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can move the entire animal. Or take chips as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. It's clear what James is trying to say. 
He's trying to say that the little things, if not handled and managed well, can cause destruction in our life. But also the little things handled and managed well can be of great benefit to our life. After having a stern conversation with some of his disciples in Matthew 17, Jesus challenges them. He says, you've got to understand, speaking to his disciples, that if you have faith, not only would it change your life, but it would change the lives of those around you. He says, and you don't even need a lot of it. He says in Matthew 17, 20, he says, you don't have enough faith. I tell you the truth, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there. And another version, it says, cast into the sea and it would be done. Nothing would be impossible. And so, if each of us are to live the big life that God has desired for us, we must be vigilant in looking after the little things. If we want the big doors to swing wide open, we have to make sure we haven't neglected the little hinges to rust, but actually that they're cared for. After all, whether the door opens at all or hinges on this. And so for the rest of our time tonight, and I got the chance to share this message with our Papakura family this morning, I want us to focus in on the Word of God. Now, I know it's no small thing, but sometimes it can be pushed to, to the peripheral. We can treat it like a small thing. What knowing the Word of God can do to our life and the massive impact that it can have, and I want to focus particularly in on the life of David. Now, David is a shepherd boy who's called out by God to be the next king. He's been anointed by Samuel, but there's still some time to pass before David actually gets to be the king. Perhaps there's some valuable lessons that he needs to learn before he steps into the bigness of that position. There's this huge Philistine man referred to as a giant that we affectionately know as Goliath. He stands at nine feet, nine inches, or just under three, three meters tall, and he's taunting the Israelites, God's people. And as you read the account in 1 Samuel 17, it's really clear, it's, it's, it's blatantly clear that the Israelites, God's army, are absolutely terrified. And then along comes a little shepherd boy named David. He's called to live a big life. He's bold, he's confident, he comes out all guns blazing as a lot of young people do, it's great, but boldness and confidence alone will not get David the victory. And so all the other older men that are in the army, they start trying to talk David out of it, and they begin to highlight the visibly obvious mismatches in physicality. They're like, David, he's massive, you're tiny. He's tall, you're short. He's strong, you're weak. He has normal hair, you have a man bun. He's wearing normal sandals, you're wearing Crocs, right? Like he's, he's highlighting all the things that disadvantage a person and saying, David, there's no way that you could take on this battle alone. They point out all of these things, but David responds, and this is what I love about David who would soon be king. He responds, he says, oh, but I've been preparing for this moment my entire life. He says, I've been caring for my father's sheep and goats, I'm faithful. When a lion or bear tries to come and steal one of the lambs, I use my club to rescue it. I'm bold and I'm confident. I've even killed lions when I've needed to. I'm calculated and I'm trained, but then he says this, and this is the key for us. He says, the Lord who rescued me from the lion and bear will rescue me from this Philistine. In other words, he's like, if anyone was prepared to take on this giant, it's me. I'm trained, I'm dedicated, I know how to do this sort of thing, and yet I'm recognizing right now that it's the Lord. He says, I've been developing myself in the background. I've been bettering myself where I could. I've grown my own gift and ability, but ultimately it's God that's going to turn me into a giant killer. Well, the rest of the army are like, well, that's a pretty good speech. I'm convinced. So they let him go out into the battlefield, but not before first trying to fit him with some armor that's clearly way too big for him. It's not too long before David realizes this armor's too big and it doesn't fit and I don't need it anyway. And then comes the part that I think we read over far too quickly. He says this. It says this. It says, he went over to a stream with his staff in one hand. It's a big stick. And bent down to collect five little smooth stones to put in his bag. Five little things. 
that would become the ammunition he needed for the greatest victory of his life. Five little things that he prepared in private. Now let me tell you how I know that he prepared them in private. Because as he goes out onto the battlefield, and as Goliath begins to approach David, Goliath calls out, he says, am I a dog that you would come at me with sticks? Sticks. Goliath didn't see the stones. Goliath didn't see what David had crouched down to prepare in private. Look, David was going to live a big life. David was going to overcome great challenges, but David's greatest ammunition would not come from his armor. It wouldn't come from a spear or a sword. It wouldn't come from confidence and boldness. It wouldn't even come from the fact that he knew one day he would be king. But David's greatest ammunition came from the small little stones that lined up with his gifting that would take down his greatest enemy. And could I suggest tonight that there are some small seemingly little things in our life that if prepared and managed well could be the difference between us rising up to that big life and not. See, what seemed little became the catalyst for big. And as you read the story of David and this particular account, you can't possibly convince yourself otherwise that David knew the promises of God. He just absolutely did. He knew the stories, the accounts, the triumphs, and the promises. I know he was brave. I know he was anointed, but I also know, and it's very clear in Scripture, that because he was a man of the Word that gave him the foundation he needed to take down Goliath and step into the bigness of the life that God had over him. So I want us to take a look at just a couple of things that we see in David's life that show how he was a man of the Word and what that did to allow him to step into a little big life. Is that okay? The first thing that I notice is this, meditate and memorize. Meditate and memorize. There is something hugely powerful about having the promises of God flow from your heart and they're on the tip of your tongue. See, living a big life means you're going to come against opposition. Don't be swayed when you come against opposition. Of course you are. It's part of the gig. But what allows you to keep moving forward with momentum when you find yourself up against opposition is that you immediately know what God says about you and your calling. David would have grown up learning the stories, the oral traditions, maybe even some written pages. He would have memorized statements of who God was and what he was capable of. David would have grown up reading Deuteronomy 20 verse 4 that says, For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Like he, he knew that like the back of his hand. So when he comes against Goliath, that's what he's thinking about. So when he comes up against this challenge, it means he doesn't need to resort back to being a little shepherd boy to go back to the field that he was at, but he allows the overflow of his heart to make a declaration from his mouth. He doesn't need to run back to some cave and unravel a scroll and says, what did the Lord say? Or find some wise man in the village and say, can you tell me this story again? He had meditated on it and it was written on his heart. And so when David was out on the battlefield against Goliath, he said this in 1 Samuel 17, 47. He says, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he'll give you into our hands. I love this. He's like, everyone here will know We've studied it, we know it, we've meditated on it, we don't need to remind you, we all know that this is how God works and this is how He saves. He says that all the people would know. His meditation and His memorization gave Him confidence in the face of opposition. And then I think of Jesus, who's in the desert for 40 days, and He's being tempted by the devil. The devil is trying to, trying to twist Scripture to lie to Jesus and lead Him astray. And I mean, if anyone has bigness on their life, it's Jesus, right? But he guards himself from deception by knowing in his heart what the scripture actually says. 
The devil was like, Jesus, you should just jump off this cliff and God will catch you, right? Like the word says that he's going to protect you. Like you're not going to even hurt your foot. Like you'll be all good. You should jump. And Jesus is like, hmm, nice try. Kind of true, but not fully true. He says, that's not what that means. Because the word of God also says that you should not test the Lord your God. You know, the devil often lies to us in half truths. It's not often when the enemy tries to lie to you, you're like, that's ridiculous. It's usually something where you go, all right, it might be true. It's kind of half true. I might, I might sort of believe that. The problem with a half truth is it's a half lie. And when you don't immediately know the promises of God and what he says about you and your value, your identity, the call on your life, you give more time for the seed of that lie to take root in the soil of your heart. You don't immediately know. You're like, I don't have time to run back to my Bible and say, what does it say about it? When you know the promises of God on your heart and you hear nonsense like that, you say, that doesn't sound right. As Jesus said, oh, it doesn't sound right. It's kind of half true. Like that is what God said, but that's not what God meant. So when you know the promises of God on your heart, it can help you in those situations. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 to 9. says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Not just your cell phones, your iPads, and your written Bibles. He says, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. It's not just about getting into the Word, but allowing the Word to get into you. Allowing the Word of God to be part of every part of your life. People are able to live big lives because they know the truth of the God that empowers them. For just one minute, I wonder if I could just give you some practical tips in the hopes that it might help you memorize things. Memorizing things is, is part of what we have to do, and maybe some of the things that I've learned to do might help you. Firstly, repetition, an obvious one, right? Pick a scripture that you want to memorize. Don't pick Jesus wept. That's cheating, all right? You've all just memorized Jesus wept. Well done. You pick, a, pick a small one to start with. I, I find that memorizing things is kind of like a skill. It's kind of like a muscle. You can get better and better at it, so start with something manageable. Pick like a single sentence or two-sentence scripture and read it 10 to 15 times. Just repetition. Just go over and over and over and let it wash over your heart, and then read it and get as far as you can without looking. The moment you get stuck and you're like, oh, I don't know what comes next, look down, read what comes next, start at the beginning. Don't carry on because you need to build the connections. Start at the beginning, go again, get as far as you can. The moment you mess up, and it might be the same spot, you're like, I just read it and I forgot it. It's all good, start again. Every time you go, you're ingraining the first part, and that first part gets longer and longer and longer, and it's part of the big picture. Just keep on going, get as far as you can. When you mess up, read what comes next, start at the beginning. Studies also show that when you, when you read over things in the evening, it helps the brain process it going from short-term memory to long-term memory. Look, this sounds a bit random, but... I want you to be able to memorize scripture. I want you to know the promises of God, not just in your Bible or your phone, but on your heart. It is amazing how long a memorized passage can stick with you and stay active within your heart. When I was in Intermediate, I used to listen to songs on my Sony Walkman. Yeah, those were the days. Glenn knows. Bex, you'd know. Sony Walkman. Glenn is older than you, though. Yeah, okay, so I'll explain it. Anyway, cassette tapes, portable, it was the dream. Um, I would listen to songs and then, you know, I'd try to learn the words and sort of sing, if you could call it that, um, over the top and memorize it. And then when I would get stuck, I would uh, hop on the dial-up internet and I'd Google what comes next. And then I would start again at the beginning, get my pencil out, put it in the cog and I'd wind it back to the start and I'd put it back in the cassette tape so I could memorize the song. Well, I used to do that all the time. The other day, 
I was driving along and just listening to the radio, and this song came on. I forgot even existed for 20 years. I hadn't even thought about this, and I knew every word. Like, it just immediately started flowing out of my heart. I will not sing it, but I will let you know it was Whole Again by Atomic Kitten, which is mean. That's mean. You know that song, eh? <laughs> Looking back. Anyway, that's mean. That's mean. I didn't even know. I was like, Lord is prompting me. The words were just coming. It's like, honestly, tw- it's like early 2000s, like 20 years. At that time, I memorized it, and there it was. When something is taken root, like good or bad, it can be really hard to get it out, evidently. Even just time doesn't get it out. So plant the seeds of Scripture in your heart because it's always going to be true and it's always going to anchor you to the truth. You know the main reason that David could be confident against Goliath was because in the secret place he would have meditated on the promises of God day in and day out. And it created within him an unwavering faith that God would help him fight his battles. You know, I realized that using small stones in that battle was not something that David decided, oh gosh, he's looking scary. I'm just going to wander over here and find some stones. I'll give this a crack. Like it wasn't a new idea to him to go and find stones. David didn't conquer Goliath that day because of one moment of bravery. No, this was a lifetime of commitment and devotion. This was a lifetime of him working and being devoted, knowing how to take down his enemies. It was not just that moment, it was the fruit of a life of devotion. And when you commit yourself to meditating on the Word of God and memorizing it, it sets itself up as your first response. When you hear a lie or someone speaks over your life in a way that's not true and it's discouraging, when you begin to have negative thoughts, you know that don't line up with the Word of God, when you know, it immediately springs forth and it's your first response. And also the Holy Spirit can use it to nudge you as well. I want us all to be like David, that even in the face of our greatest challenges, we would stand firm on the promises of God because they're not just on our devices in our paper Bibles, but they've also been written on our hearts. Meditate and memorize. And the second and final thing that we see in David's life, at least for the sake of the time we've got left, there's probably more, but is private pursuit. And uh, Sammy, you can join me on keys. That'd be awesome. Private pursuit. When Samuel was sent by God to go and anoint David as the next king, it's quite interesting because David, right from the start, sorry, Samuel, right from the start, gets a sense of who he's going to go and pray for and anoint. Now, he doesn't know his name. He doesn't know his identity. But the Bible says that Samuel declares that it would be a man after God's own heart. Do you know David is the only person in the whole Bible described that way? When speaking to Saul, the current king, Samuel says this in 1 Samuel 13, 14. He says, But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people, because you, Saul, have not kept the Lord's command. Now, it's not exactly sure, not exactly certain, rather, what Samuel meant when he described David as a man after God's own heart, but it's assumed that it's mostly attributed to David's obedience. And the reason for that is because you can see in the verse I just read you, is because Saul had not kept the Lord's command. Assumedly, David would then do that. After David's time serving in the king's palace and having this giant killer experience, he goes on to write about 50% of the Psalms that we read in our Bible. And what's really clear about David's heart as you read through those Psalms is that he had this desperate longing to know God and to be close to him. To David, God was not just some powerful supreme being without connection. Rather, he sees him as relational and personal. Check out these really personal words in Psalm 139. He says, Lord, you have searched me and know me. 
You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. Notice that David doesn't say, Lord, you've searched all things and know all things, but he says, you've searched me and you know me. And it can be really easy to judge a person and the bigness of their life by what we can see their physical appearance, their clothing, their status, their wealth, their popularity, but it was none of these things that gave David the title in Samuel's mind as a man that was after God's own heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. This is the moment where Samuel goes to find this David to anoint him, and he's going through all of David's brothers one at a time, and God's like, not him, not him, not him. I know he looks good. I know he looks like he might be the next king, but it's not him. And that's when God says, I've rejected him. And then he says, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Again, it was what David had been devoted to in private that became his biggest advantage. The purity of his heart led to his elevation and prominence. But as you read the Psalms, it becomes really clear, especially the ones written by David, that he never devoted himself to the word and to the promises of God so that he'd be the king one day. He already knew. It wasn't so that he'd be accepted among his brothers, so that he'd be acknowledged in another setting. David's private devotion, surrender, and pursuit of God was pure in heart, and for that, God elevated him into a big life. He would go down as Israel's greatest king. In fact, it's in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 that it says, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. And when it comes to living a little big life, it's the authenticity of the little things that make way for the big ones. When you pick up your Bible, or swipe it open, do you do it so that? Is it so that I feel good as a Christian? So that I've got something to post on Instagram? So that I've got material to deliver to my small group? So that I've got content for a sermon? Is it so that we feel good for completing a Bible reading plan? Or could it be that it's just the greatest tool given to us to truly go after God's own heart? Could it be that knowing God and having Him know us is the clearest way to live a big life? And you know, it's not just spending time with God in Scripture, like that's, a, that's important, that's how we start, but it's how we do it. Just real quick, how do we do it? Firstly, vulnerability. Like David, pray that God would search your heart, which means uncrossing the arms, letting the barriers down, and inviting God into the mess and the turmoil of your life. It means confession. As we invite God into our world, and as we read the Word, and the Word reads us, it's actually taking the time to confess our sin to God. That's really important, to ask for His amazing grace in our life. And then it's surrender. This looks like submitting and repenting, choosing to submit to God's Word as a trustworthy source of truth that we would align our lives to even when it's hard. And it's realizing that if there's ever a discrepancy between our lives and God's instruction, it's us that needs to adjust. In Psalm 19, I love this. David uses six different words to describe God's word, scripture, the Bible. He uses these words, law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, and rules. And then he further adds six characteristics. He says it's perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. And then finally he goes on to give six benefits. He says it revives the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever, and produces righteousness. He's stacking layers of six terms or six characteristics with six benefits to communicate the perfect comprehensiveness of God's Word. It is all-sustaining, it is complete, it is sufficient. One of our greatest biblical examples, heroes, kings, and sons, finds himself living a big life. 
And if you know any more of the story of David, which I haven't included today, you know that he certainly wasn't short of his mess-ups. That dude messed up big time. And yet he was still devoted. And he built his life off the Word of God and the promises of God, and God raised him to influence. He used him in a mighty way because he was grounded there. He meditated and he memorized. He knew God's promises in his heart, and this gave him confidence and boldness in the face of his giants. But there was also a pure-heartedness to his approach to simply knowing God to being in communion with his creator, to wrestle with the tough things in a vulnerable way as he invited God in. Even a giant killer king understood that big doors swing on small hinges. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your grace on our life. I thank you for the truth of your word. And my prayer today, God, is as I've spoken, God, that I would decrease, you would increase. It would all be about people connecting with you. And I just pray that you would highlight one or two key things for every person to take away that we would be a people dedicated to your word, that it wouldn't be pushed to the peripheral, but we would get the little things right in order to live a big life, that we would meditate and memorize, and that we would pursue you, not so that anything, not to tick a box, but simply that we would know you and know you well. With every eye still closed and head bowed, I want to pray one final prayer. For anyone in the room today, you would say, I'm sitting here and I don't know God. I may have read the Bible. It may be my first time in church. I may have done some stuff, but you talk about David knowing God. I want to know God too. The truth is that God loves you. He made you, and he has a plan and a purpose for your life. But more than the plan and the purpose, it's that he wants relationship with you. Bible says that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We, none of us meet that perfect standard. But he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross because the penalty for sin was death. But Jesus was willing to take that upon himself so that you and I could walk free today. The Bible says that if you accept that and you declare it, then the old would be gone and the new would come. That brand new life would come to you. He gives you forgiveness for your past, brand new life right now and the promise of eternity in heaven with him. And you're just one prayer away from a brand new start. If that's you, I'm gonna pray this out loud. I invite you to pray this in your heart, but you mean it with everything you've got. Say, dear God, I acknowledge that I've sinned. I've chosen my own way above your way. But right now, I choose to put my trust in you. I turn from my old way of life, God. I repent. I turn 180 degrees, and I place my hand in your hand. I invite you in as my Lord, the one I can trust to lead me and guide me, and as my Savior, the only one that could have paid that price on my behalf. And I choose from this day to live for you. With every eye closed and head still bowed, I want you to do something so brave in just a moment. If you pray that prayer in a moment, I'm going to ask you to lift your hand. I'm not going to embarrass you or anything. I'll acknowledge it. You can put it straight back down. We just want to celebrate with you, get you a free Bible after the service. If that was you, God loves you. He's for you. He's on your side. I want you to lift your hand in three, two, one. Go now, nice and high. Awesome. I see you, young man. That's amazing. Is there anyone else? It's kind of dark, but I don't necessarily need to see it. If, if, if that's you, just lift your hand right where you are. You're saying, that's me. I prayed that prayer. I meant it. Well, God, I thank you for a brand new life today. I thank you that your grace is sufficient for us and you meet us right where we're at. We celebrate brand new life and I certainly saw that young man. I'm not sure if there are others, but we know God, it was never about the hand and it was always about the turned heart. And it's our honor to be in the room to watch you move in someone's life like that. I pray God that you surround those people with excellent mentors, a great pathway, begin to speak to them about the future that you have for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, church, let's celebrate those that might have prayed that prayer tonight. Thank you for listening to this Elam Christian Center podcast. Please subscribe to keep hearing more life-changing messages. For more information about our church, please visit 
www.elamchristiancentre.org.nz.